Thank you, Jim. <laughs> oh. It is well. It is well with my soul. So often those words seem so foreign to us, especially in the situations where it doesn't feel like it is well. We see the chaos, we see the waves. But if we just put our trust in God, just have a little bit of tiny faith. It is well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I know, at the very least in my life, there are waves, scary waves, that are all around me. And I know I'm not unique in this. There are those with medical issues, family issues, financial, anything that you can think of. People see the chaos and danger all around. And it's scary. Lord, I pray that regardless of all that, we would see you through it. Through the storm, through the waves, so insignificant to you that you walk on them like they're dry land. And that because of that, we would know that no matter what happens, no matter what goes on, you are there. And because you are there, it is well. I pray. I pray as we continue into worshiping you through your words, Lord that we would hear your voice, that it would cut through whatever's going on in our lives, and we would truly hear your voice, and it would affect us, it would change us to become more in line with what you have for us, Lord. 
even just a little. And that it would not just change us here and now, but continue to be a catalyst to cause change today, tomorrow, the next day, the rest of this week, the rest of this year, the rest of our lives. So again, as we move to change gears a little bit, but still continue worship you, worshiping you, let us hear you in all of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, worship team. Thank you. Is it well? How are we doing? Sometimes we have to say that over and over until we really let it sink in, don't we? It's like, how many times do we have to tell our kids the same thing until they finally don't get it? Or wait a minute, right? But I hope, I hope it is well with your soul. Um, you know, I think of a few families that have experienced loss uh, this past week or two. I know the O'Connell family, the, the Drown family have had loss um, of family members. So we certainly hope it is well with their souls. We hope that, um, you know, that God is with them. We know that uh, he is there for them through that. Uh, and thank God for that. <laughs> thank God that God is there for us. But uh, anyway, we welcome you here this morning. We hope uh, you enjoy at least the cool air in here versus the humidity outside, right? Uh, not a whole lot of um, announcements today, which is good because uh, usually there's a little bit less going on in the summer so that we can all enjoy the uh, outdoors and the, the many things that there are to enjoy. So, uh, but we're glad that you're here today. We're glad that you've taken a little bit of time to worship our God, to celebrate the, the hope that we have through him. So... Um, uh, like I said, the, the announcements are probably just the normal ones that you're seeing here up on the screen, and we'll, uh, we'll move right along. And Warren, are you doing scripture today? Sure. Come on up. Sure. Are you doing the ones that we had planned, or you, no?
Good morning. So David and I have been doing, uh, going through the Roman Road on Saturday mornings. We get together for an hour, and sometimes we do study, and sometimes we put around in the yard. But it's it's time that we get together, and and I really enjoy it. And so today we're picking up in Romans three. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world would, whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become, the, we become conscious of our sin. Can you hear me? Yep. Loud and clear. Lima Charlie. Loud and clear. <clears throat> Somebody told me uh, among the criticisms I received the last time I preached, uh, the friendly one was that I look like a child sitting at a school desk. <laughs> I hope you'll pardon me for sitting. Uh, <clears throat> let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to share in your word. We pray, dear Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, help us to be better Christians. And for those who may not know you in this hearing, we pray, dear Lord, that today you would prick their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I forgot my water, so if <clears throat> I'm just having a rough time with um, pollen stuff, so is there anybody who could help me? It's right here, but uh, only if I need it. I just wanted to mention it so that if somebody helps me, they don't have to go all the way to the back. Warren's kind of you. Romans 3.23. How many of you have ever heard the term the Romans, Roman road? Jim, 
It looks like uh, eight people, nine people. Good. Well, this morning, that's almost half of us. <laughs> so if you could, please turn to Romans chapter 3 with me. In whatever form of media you've brought. And uh, I am having trouble dividing the uh, pages. There we are. So this is a tale of two men. They both shared the last name of Bain. They were brothers and they were very close, raised in New Jersey. Uh, one's name was H. Raymond Bain. Now, H. Raymond Bain was called H. Raymond Bain because whatever his first name was was lost to history and he preferred people didn't know it, which means it was probably like Haldor or one of those old names from the last century. That's all right. And the other was a famous guy named Harry Bain. I'll show you a picture of Harry. Now that is a classic United States Air Force circulation 1970s official photograph. Right, Jim? Yep. Harry Bain had the distinction of being one of the first sergeants to become a pilot in the Army Air Corps during the Second World War. He dropped out of Princeton to do that, and he flew many missions during the war. They called them hump missions. He flew over the Himalayan mountains. He was awarded some of our nation's highest medals. He was a man of God, like his younger brother, H. Ray. And when he died, his, his obituary, or his uh, funeral, was held by John Hagee. Have you heard of him? Real famous dude, right? Reverend Dr. John Hagee, big, massive TV ministry, thousands and thousands of people in church every Sunday morning, still here, still living today. Most people have heard of him. So Harry was a big, big cheese. And I'm glad he was a Christian. I think I met him once or twice, but didn't know the significance of the meeting. But I want to talk to you about his brother, Ray. H. Raymond Bain. Pastor Bain was the pastor of Grace Bible Church. And Grace Bible Church had about 300 people. It was packed every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening, and every Wednesday. There were a hundred children in its children's ministry. I mean, it was just a phenomenal little beacon of light in the little itty-bitty village of <laughs> town, really, of, of Owasso, Michigan. Now, I was a city kid. Things were getting kind of rough in my city. You've heard of it, Flint, Michigan. It was a violent place all my life, and so my folks thought fresh start in little old Owasso would be something. And there was a biker freak down the road, and uh, he, wore, he had all the tattoos, and he had a Honda 750, and he was kind of a funny dude. But I was really surprised when he told me he was a Christian. I was playing ball with his, his sons and stuff. And uh, growing up the way I did, I thought that all 
Protestant Christians because my world was divided as a Catholic, Irish Catholic boy, my world was divided into Protestant and Catholic. I thought all Protestants were crazy. After all, I grew up in the inner city. <clears throat> and you know how Protestants got you to go to the rescue mission down the street from our house in the inner city? They would bribe you with food. <laughs> and they must have had my number because my favorite fishing hole was under a bridge, which in Flint, Michigan, there was no safe bridge, but that was my fa favorite fishing hole. And just above the bridge was the city rescue mission. And so I would sneak in there thinking I was being sneaky and steal a box of Girl Scout cookies, which I, I realize now they had sitting out there every day waiting for me. <laughs> and uh, if I didn't catch a catfish that was laden with poison because the poison was so thick in the fish in the Flint River, even back then, before the water crisis, that it still boggles my mind that they bothered drinking out of the Flint River ever because it wasn't safe to drink out of when I was a little boy. And so it was from that environment to the rather calm environment of Owasso that we moved. And the biker freak said, you should come to church sometime. And I said, thank you, no. Ah, but <clears throat> I was tall. I've always been tall. And his kids and I played ball together. And when I found out they had a church league ball school, a ball program, put on, by the way, by the word of life, I thought, man, if I played with these guys, I'd be a star because I could dunk by then and um, I was probably two feet taller than these guys. And so one day I went to practice and the coach said, well, you can play, but you have to go to church once a week. And he had my number two. I started attending and the first thing I found was a girlfriend and the second thing I found was that these people had been praying for me to enter their doors for two years. This congregation of fine leaders in the community, wonderful believers. David John Kimmel for two years before I came. I wanted to impress the girl. And so when H. Raymond Bain who's just a pastor to me, who I called Father because I was Catholic for the first year I knew him. Father Bain, no, David, it's not Father Bain, just pastor will do. <laughs> he said, how would you like to meet with me once a week over the summer and study the Bible? I was like floored. A grown man who wore a suit was asking me to spend time with him. And that was the opposite of most of the men I'd ever seen in my life, including my own father. And so I said, sure. And he said, now wait a minute. Before you say sure, you, you will have to agree to a few things. What's that? Well, you have to be here on time. I've got a busy schedule. It's going to be in my study. We don't have time to play around, but I'll give you a full hour. And each week, you have to memorize a Bible verse. Well, by then I was already in theater. I had whole scripts memorized. I'd been a leading man. I'd even acted professionally for a summer. So I thought one verse a week, easy peasy, no problem. And the first thing I did is I went and told that girl, <laughs> I'm having a Bible study with your pastor. <laughs> 
And uh, she didn't act like it was a big thing, which kind of surprised me. And so <clears throat> it began. And the first week we met, he said, the verse I want you to memorize this week is from the book of Romans. You've heard of Romans, sure. It's from the third chapter. It's written by the Apostle Paul in the verses 3.10. Now, I didn't know it then, but over the course of that summer, we would learn what is popularly known as the Roman road. And so Romans 3.10, the verse Warren read this morning, is the first word we memorize in the Roman road. If you follow this uh, prescription, it'll lead you from knowing nothing whatsoever to understanding your need for a Savior and how to be saved. And so even though it's basic to some people here, half of you at least have heard of it before, it's like the other basics I talked about last time. I don't know if you remember them from Acts 2.42. There was prayer. Anybody remember another one? You do, but you're just being shy. Fellowship. And the Apostles' Doctrine, which is, of course, preaching and teaching. And the breaking of bread, which is more than just communion. It is, uh, a, a, back then, before the Corinthians messed it up, it was also what they would commonly call a love feast. And so basically, you see all of these in some form or fashion in a healthy church and in a healthy Christian life. And so <clears throat> the Roman road is just like that. But what fascinated me is that I'd already failed a lot of Latin after one semester, but growing up Catholic, I, I knew a little Latin, obviously, and, and so I understood the importance of Roman roads. Via Appia, for instance, the Appian Way and so forth. Via being road, Appia being the name of the road. You probably are getting bored if I go on with too much more Latin. The point is, um, <clears throat> I appreciate this idea of a road. And so I encourage you this morning to start memorizing the verses in the book of Romans. But today I'm not going to share more than the first verse who knows, perhaps I'll have a chance to preach again, and when I do, I'll share the second verse with you. And I have quite a story to tell you then, but this story about two men, both godly men, is that Pastor Bain took the time methodically. He kept up his end of the bargain, and this was a busy man. This was a church. He was a learned man, and he had nothing else on his mind but reaching the lost, whoever they may be, when they came through his doors, including a teenage boy not yet old enough to drive. Praise God for the Pastor Baines. He just passed a few years ago at the age of 98. And what a lasting legacy he's had. And so as I go through this, I'm going to assume that the other half of you who aren't familiar with the Roman road are also Bible scholars. And so we're not going to stick with just memorizing the, first, the, the verse, 310, but I want you to memorize it. Pick a, pick a version of the scripture that you use and memorize it and stick with it. Trust me, it'll come in handy. And if perhaps you have questions or doubts about the Lord, 
I promise you, the Lord's word will speak better than Billy Graham can speak or John Hagee or even H. Raymond Bain. And so what we see here as we ramp up to Romans 3.10 is we see Paul just finishing a discussion with Jewish, Christ, Jewish Christians or Jews in Rome. And he had just started his letter with saying he wanted to come to Rome and impart a spiritual gift on the Romans. He had never been to the Roman church per se. He was a Roman citizen, but he was a Roman citizen by uh, birthright in, uh, uh, in Asia and not where Rome was in Europe. So Paul wanted to come, and what he's done methodically is he made the argument that we're all without excuse, no matter whether you're Greek or Jew, that is to say, no matter whether you're a Gentile or a Jew. And he starts a chapter by saying, is there an advantage in being Jewish? And he said, well, yes, there's an advantage in being Jewish in that we're the ones that were given the word of the one true God. But then he says, shall we conclude that we're any better? And the nuance is pretty important. That's verse 9 where Warren started reading. Not at all. Because while you have give, been given the word of God, or as some versions call it, the oracles of God, we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And then he does something he, I just love Paul for doing. He says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. As it is written, where is it written? Well, it's written in the Old Testament, the Bible they had at the time. And by the way, there's one verse that I'll share with you this morning that is in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Bible that Paul would have studied when he studied under the most famous teacher of the time, a guy named Gamaliel, in which most learned Jews had studied under. And the reason I want to say that is because some versions of the modern Bible don't include it. Don't let that bother you or anything like that. Paul's writing to an audience familiar with the text that he's, he's using. And so Paul says, like the Bible says, there's no one righteous. How can that be? How can, how can it be that there's no one righteous? There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good. Not even one. And Paul is referring to Psalms. If you have your Bible, uh, turn to Psalms 14, 1 through 3 with me. Psalms 14, 1 through 3. Now who wrote most of the Psalms? Two, two major writers of Psalms. Can anybody shout one out while we're turning? Psalms. It, it, it's, it's okay if you know it. Say it. Psalms was written by David, the great king. And it was also written primarily by uh, those that weren't written by David were written by a guy named Asaph, not to be uh, confused with Asaph. 
the guy, uh, you all know who Asaph is, right? Oh, please, you're killing me. <laughs> Either you're already asleep. <laughs> of course you know who Asaph was, Asaph's fables and so forth. But that's not that guy. So here we have, we have David, and I said again, it's Psalms 14, 1, 2, 3. All right, uh, you're all a little timid this morning, but who's there and would like to read that? Please do. Go ahead. So this is for the director of music, which uh, many believe is Asaph, and it's from David, the king, the great king David. And this is what Paul is quoting. His audience is familiar with it. And then turn to Psalms 53, 1 through 3. Now, you don't have to, but is there anyone other than Jessica who would like to read that and has a good, loud voice? Not a shout, but Jim, go ahead. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and their ways are vile. There is no one who does good. God looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Everyone has turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Yeah, so, so far, if you disagree with Paul's premise that there's none righteous, you're arguing with King David. <laughs> Certainly in history, although I admit that there are people, I read an article in the National Geo, there are people that think that he's a myth and he didn't exist. It's kind of strange to me, but there are people like that who uh, seem to be sincere in their belief, and there's a lot of uh, effort to disprove the existence of King David. We can talk about why that is in a second here. Uh, but this is King David. Now, how many of you would consider yourself uh, students of history? Show of hands. If you really are into history, one, two, and the rest of you are shy, three. How many were interested in what they ate yesterday? Oh, okay, that's two. Oh, boy. I got a live crowd today. <laughs> the point is, we all have some interest in history. And King David is sometimes maligned as the king that didn't exist. Even though the first temple was Solomon's temple, Solomon would have, and there still is plenty of evidence of the first temple, and of course of the second temple. And, you know, archaeologists who don't believe in God can delineate the difference between the foundation and building of the first temple, which is Solomon's, and the second, which is not Solomon's. And so somehow Solomon apparently didn't have a dad. <laughs> and King David, why is it important? It's important because King David is the one who receives the Davidic promise, and I briefly touched on the uh, covenants of God in my last sermon with you. And so King David um, is the great-grandfather of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if there's no King David, there's no Jesus Christ. There's no lineage. There's no claim to kingship. And he was just a good man. And so there will always be efforts to suggest that there was no King David, no royal line, because 
that is just the enemy's, uh, one of his cheap ways to try to say that the Lord Jesus Christ is not who he said he was. Perhaps didn't even exist. But of course you have to believe that Solomon, who is, there is archaeological evidence to support in spades, you'd have to believe that he was uh, fatherless or perhaps the father of one of his own children or <laughs> something. So it makes no sense. And so this is King David. Now, I asked you why, if you were interested in history, for another reason. How many of you have ever heard of the Nine Worthies of the World? Wonderful reading. And the reason I bring it up is because one of the ancient worthies was King David. This, more than any other time, we live in a time when people try to discredit what has been accepted history for centuries for millennia. And why is it? Why is it that things that we once knew to be so are so constantly undermined? No, now I'm not talking about uh, we once knew that hymns were the best and now we sing uh, choruses. I'm talking about things that humanity, whether they believed in God or not, believed were true. And I'm not talking about Copernicus and, you know, the earth at the center of the universe versus the sun. I'm talking about core beliefs that there is some historical evidence of. So keep in mind, as Paul quotes Psalms, he also recognizes, and it's subtle in the way he presents it, that this is the very argument that the enemy counters. For the enemy would say, well, certainly there are righteous people. And even in churches, we talk about good and bad people so easily. But the truth of the matter is the Christian worldview is that there's none righteous. It's not only something Paul wrote, it's something that King David wrote. It's something David understood from his oral tradition, from his oral history. And finally, turn with me to Ecclesiastes 7.20. When I say finally, I say for this diatribe here. Ecclesiastes 7.20. Somebody get there faster than me, because... Okay, are you there yet? Okay, it's right there? Wonderful. Indeed, there's no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Now just, uh, who wrote Ecclesiastes? Solomon, David's son. Do you imagine that Solomon, as wise as he was, uh, just made this up? I think he heard it from his father, because Solomon, of course, would have been very familiar with the Psalms, because everybody knew that David was the singing king. Remember, he used to go and sing and play for Saul, who hated him and wanted to kill him, and it would calm Saul because David had, had a gift from God. And so we see, what we see here is that this is passed down, this concept, from king to king and then throughout history. Interesting enough, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were the two major divisions uh, during this time that Paul is writing and during the time of Jesus, the Sadducees believed that the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, it's called, 
we're, we're the Bible. And so they pretty much ignored everything, including these writings. And then the Pharisees believed in uh, the Pentateuch, the law, and then they believed in the poetry, which would include uh, Psalms and, and, then, and uh, the prophets. In other words, they believed in what we generally call the Old Testament. I think the Old Testament uh, is not to be profound or provocative, but I think it's all one testament. If you want to know the truth, we conveniently sort of you know, make, uh, separate them, but they aren't. We see right here an example of how they are all part of the same string of thoughts. Okay, their throats are an open grave, their tongues practice deceit. Now turn to Psalm chapter 5, verse 9. And the reason I'm going through all of these is it's important not just to memorize a verse that some may accept and some may question. It's important to understand that this is not Saul, Paul rather, flying by the seat of his, his pants. This is Paul a scholar. Why is that important? While we're turning to Psalms 5.9, I'll tell you. And you've already got it up here, Warren, is that right? Okay. Well, the reason that's important, simply, is that there are actually scholars now, so-called scholars, I don't think they're scholars myself, who believe that Paul redid what should have been real Christianity. I mean, it's a, it's a huge thing. It's so huge now that there are some people who have been involved in a movement called deconstruction. They don't even know they're involved in it in some cases. In some cases, they're openly involved in this deconstruction movement in which they not only question everything we do, which is always important, always important, but they say that much of what we do is wrong. And the truth is, what they don't realize is is that this is an old argument. This isn't a new argument for new intelligentsia. This is old. These deconstructionists don't realize it, but they're playing right into the hands of the enemy. Why? Because if you can question parts of the Bible because you think that there's a chance that they stem from something that isn't exactly what Jesus Christ said, then we must all be wrong. It must all be wrong. We must undo everything. Throw out the baby with the bathwater. Well, some of you are saying, I never heard it. I'm glad. I hope you don't even, <laughs> don't even ever have to sit under a pastor who's struggling with that philosophy. Because Paul is one of the biggest enemies in that heresy. That's a strong word, but I mean it's a heresy. Because they say that Pauline doctrine is not what the church was intended to be. It was sort of this guy, Paul, taking off and running with it. But if you know history, that's not the case at all. One of the reasons Paul is so prominent is because a good many of the early apostles were martyred. And Paul was like one of the few men less standing among the apostles, certainly. He wasn't the last one, mind you. John, was, John the apostle was the last one. And so it's important to understand that what Paul is preaching in this very important book is completely supported 
by the words written more than a thousand years before Jesus Christ was born, but inspired by Jesus Christ, who was God incarnate. In Psalm 5.9, we read, Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with destruction. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they speak deceit. We can say right away that if they're not to be trusted and they're deceitful, they're, of course, liars. When you think about the concept of an open grave, a lot of times you think about a stench that comes with it. In the uh, uh, King James Version, they use sepulcher, and this word here does connote the sort of grave where, uh, you know, you would roll away the stone, and, um, you know, you would find a stench, as they said, when they said, well, the Lord's been in, in there for three days, it's going to stink. Remember that from the New Testament? And what we see here is their mouths are like open graves. That's nasty, isn't it? The poison of vipers is on their lips. Vipers are an interesting snake. In terms of Psalm 140, verse 3. And again, I want to remind you, just in case you're wondering, we're going through this this way. It's important to understand what this does mean and doesn't mean. And also, as scholars, as I said, we, all, we are all scholars, and, and uh, as scholars, we want to understand it thoroughly enough so we can explain it and know the arguments, and know the arguments and where they come from. Psalm 140, verse 3, this is what Paul is quoting. They make their tongues as sharp as a serpent's. The poison of vipers is on their lips. You think about this. When Paul goes back to the writings of King David, uh, Paul is also asserting some authority. He is saying to skeptics, perhaps they were already there in Paul's day. No, no, no perhaps about it. Even Peter had already written how Paul was sort of long in his verbiage and stuff. And some might see that as a criticism, but not if they read all of what Peter had to say in that passage. But there were skeptics, even back then. I, I don't know that Paul knew that there would be the kind of skepticism there is today. But what Paul is doing in quoting King David is he is making a connection to this royal line. He is connecting this directly to our Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul says here is that uh, the poison of vipers is on their lips. A viper is obviously a poisonous snake. We know that. And at the time that this was written, uh, the Europeans hadn't come to dominate the, uh, the Middle East. And so a viper was, was a... Uh, most likely a cobra, a lot of scholars believe. Now, the word came to mean, during the time the Septuagint was written, it came to suggest something a little bit different. 
And so I'm going to discuss both of them. And you'll really appreciate this, I think. First of all, if it was an Egyptian snake, the Egyptians used this snake as one of the symbols of their strength. Pharaohs would have up to two, two of these, depending on how powerful a pharaoh they were, on their headdress. And so this was a, it was a, a symbol of power, but of course it was poisonous. And so the poison of vipers is on their lips. Paul is also possibly saying, and I say possibly because this is something that we can speculate about, but I don't know for certain, but it's very possible that Paul is also saying the words of the people that I'm talking about are like going back to Egypt. The very place the Lord brought us out of. The poison is so consuming, it's enslaving. But we can't ignore the fact that Paul also was a student of the Septuagint. There's no question, mind you, that even though the Septuagint was written in Greek, it, Paul would have been a scholar of of Hebrew, there's no question about that. And, but a viper by Paul's time had come to be known as a snake brought to the Middle East from Europe. If you know your history, you know that the, um, the Ptolemies uh, came to rule in Egypt when Alexander the Great took over Egypt. They called themselves Pharaoh, and every Pharaoh from Ptolemy on, we're not talking about Ptolemy the mathematician, we're talking about Ptolemy, one of the generals under, one of the great generals under uh, Alexander. They acted like Pharaohs, dressed as Pharaohs. It's believed they imported the vipers. And the viper was seen as a easy way to die if you needed to die. And for instance, some historians, although it, it, there's no proof it's absolutely so, some historians think that Cleopatra killed herself with a viper. But the, the point is, uh, the viper of that time, the European viper that definitely, definitely was brought to the Middle East by the time of this writing, that viper would bite you and you would essentially go to sleep peacefully after the initial bite sort of drugged to your death. And so there's a distinct possibility that Paul may be referring simply to being lawed into such complacency that you forget your first love. Or Paul, being the great writer that he was, could be giving us a double entendre. It could mean both. Well, we don't know for sure, but both of those provide a powerful picture, and both of those can be seen from time to time as ways in which people who call themselves gods, as Paul's audience did during the writing of Roman, and as we do sitting here today, can be lulled into such complacency that they believe that they are something they are not, or they, they are something, but do not live as if they are that something. And both are dangerous. One leads to eternal damnation. The other leads to a, a life of less than this.
less than what God has for you, which is never, ever good. Now we'll continue reading from Romans. And how are we on time? We're already late. It's a darn shame. It's a darn shame, but I can end here, and I'll tell you why I can end here, because we've read the key verse that I want you to memorize. And, and if I get a chance to come back and preach, I'll bring a little road and, and some memory cards, and I'll show you uh, real briefly, take about five minutes and show you a way to memorize these things. Because I also want those of you who are believers to have a great tool. Uh, but we can end here. There's plenty more to say. Plenty more that should be said. I encourage you to study it yourself. Um, I want to say this, though. Uh, perhaps there's somebody here today, even now, although your faces are all familiar to me, and some of you I've known for quite a long time, perhaps you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Perhaps you've never considered the the ramifications of thinking you are righteous when you're not. If that applies to you, come forward right now. Just come up. I'll pray with you. I'll share with you the message of salvation. And you can come to know the Lord that wrote these words firsthand. Now, if, if you're not walking with the Lord, but you have called him your own, and you need to get right, you need to re-find your first love, I also invite you to come up here. We'll pray with you. I'll ask some um, say Pastor Frankler, somebody to come. And there's no good reason to leave today not right with God. So if anybody like that is here, I'll go back to my seat. I'll ask the musicians to come up. And then um, if I see anybody come up, we'll have a word of prayer. Don't be shy about it. Everybody in this room who is a believer has been there before. And we're amongst friends here. Okay, thank you very much. Musicians. If you're in the Lord, you're a new creature. And if you're not in the Lord, just like the general and the preacher, you're living a life of need. And we all start there, every last one of us, just as the Bible says. And so today I pray, dear Lord, that as we go, we remember your word. We remember the lesson of the cross. We accept this state that we are born into. And we ask, dear Lord, that you would help us each to be faithful to you in humility, understanding this common issue and the only remedy for it. In Jesus' name, amen.